It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 21 91. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Uh, My guest in this episode uh, is no stranger to West Australians. He is an absolute legend of WA and Australian Crickets, I could reel off a 1,000 stats. Uh, He's played 180 test innings. He was the first West Australian to play 100 tests, uh, along with Matthew Hayden. uh, In terms of runs scored, uh, second only uh, to the great Gordon Greenwich-Desmond Haynes combo of the West Indies. You know who I'm talking about. Hello and welcome, Justin Langer. Hi, Tim. It's great to talk to you. Uh, of course, Australian cricket coach uh, as well at the moment, uh, which we'll get into in some detail in a moment, JL. But uh, I've got to ask you off the top, um, you know, as the coach of the Australian cricket team, you're used to having a frenetic calendar. All of a sudden, that's completely stopped. How are you dealing with this sudden change in pace? Well, I say this with great respect and great compassion, um, not just for friends in Australia and people in Australia, but around the world. But I'm actually loving it. <laughs> to be completely honest, I mean, I can I see my kids every day. I have home-cooked meals. I sleep in my own bed. I can work from my own um, office every day. I can be in my own garden. I can um, get out and exercise. We're so lucky here in Perth. So everything I don't do, usually for 10 months of the year, um, I'm able to do it. So I'm, I'm literally loving being an urban hippie at the moment. <laughs> Fantastic. What about the players? Are you still checking in with them pretty regularly? Yeah, of course. And the, the thing about the, the cricket at the moment, though, unlike the football codes, is our guys are actually supposed to be on a break at the moment. So, yep. And it's a really well-deserved break. So for them, things don't really feel much different, except, of course, what we're all experiencing. But I remember being at the West Coast Eagles fairest and best function last year, and I said to a few of the coaches and a few of the players, because we had just come back from the from England for five, nearly five months with the World We'd been to Gallipoli, then we went to World Cup, and then we had the Ashes. And I said to those guys, and imagine if you had to start how you're all feeling now, you've got to start your season right now. And they looked at me, yeah, whatever. I said, well, that's actually what we do in the Australian cricket team. We've just had five months in England. and In a week's time, we start the actual Australian summer. So our guys have had a really well-deserved break at the moment, yep. and it's nice to stay in touch with them. Yep. And obviously that'll start cranking up when things change a bit. Yeah. Jail, can I ask, uh, when you are enjoying a change of pace at home and spending all that time at home. Are you still getting up first thing in the morning to do your martial arts? Oh, not so much my martial arts, but I have a great routine. Um, so I start every day with half an hour of meditation. So I've yep. done that. I learned that in 1993. So 
I have my cup of tea and I do my meditation every morning and then I do some exercise of one sort or another. I went for a run this morning along the coast, which is just magic here. Um, and I, I, one thing I've learned is that if you can get into great routines and have a um, wherever you are, whether you're at home or when I'm on the road, if you get into great routines, we're so habitual as humans, mm. it certainly makes a difference. And it, um, my morning routine and my routine just before I go to bed um, certainly make, seem to make me happy for most of the day. Yeah. I, I remember speaking to you once uh, in the past, you were talking about uh, uh, the discipline that was instilled in you as a youngster doing martial arts, which which, which came about by accident, if I'm not mistaken. You, you stepped in for your for your dad at one point who had signed up for some yeah, sessions. It's, um, yeah, it's a good and, memory. Yeah, and, and <laughs> don't know why I retain that, but I have. <laughs> I'll get you to elaborate on it. Um, but that, that yeah. sense of discipline and, and respect uh, and, you know, uh, obeying rules and, and just being street smart and learning how to uh, occupy your own space and not tread on anyone else's uh, all important lessons that you learned uh, quite early on. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, no doubt. I think those two words, respect and discipline, have certainly been, I'd say, the cornerstone behind my life. So, and anything I've done in the past and do now. But I, I did learn martial arts. It was actually called the Sunrise Dojo. So, yep. Sunrise Dojo, by definition, I had to be there just before 6 a.m. every morning. And I, I trained with a guy by the name of uh, Sensei back then, John Andrew. And John Andrew is the toughest, meanest bloke I, I, to this day I've ever met in my life. But um, the very fact that as a, as a youngster I had to get up and be at the, at the dojo before six o'clock, train for an hour or whatever, and then get on and get to uni or get back to fin- it was just after I finished school actually, so get to uni or get to work or whatever I was doing at that point. Um, it was great discipline. And I remember when I first built our house, we live in City Beach, and I built like a gym out the back of the house, and I, with a big permanent marker on the back walk. That was my room. As it's turned, I've got four daughters and um, Sue, of course. I wrote the words, the pain of discipline is nothing like the pain of disappointment. And my, Sue's gone, what are you doing? This is how beautiful you had to say, babe, get used to it. And now if you go, but that, that room went from a five by five metre room and now it's a 15 by five metre room yeah. over the 20 years we've lived here. And there is literally quotes and scriptures and poems and letters all over the walls, right? and it's just an amazing. Oh, it's an amazing space. The, the the absolute disappointment of at the moment is my eldest daughter lives up there now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's the wallpaper. She can do what she likes up there. It was my gym. It was my office, and now Jess lives up there. So I'll, I'll just slide up there every now and then when I need a bit of inspiration. Yeah. But the pain of discipline, nothing like the pain of disappointment. I've learned that throughout my life. Yeah. And obviously, a respect. Respect is worth all the gold in the world. So, mm. if you're able to earn respect in life, you you're certainly um, miles ahead. And you say that uh, that sensei John Andrew was the toughest person you've ever met. How can you compare that to some of the <laughs> the monsters from the West Indies that you faced when you were padding up at the crease <laughs> and they were sending thunderbolts down there? Yeah, it was different. Johnny, he, he was a mean. Oh, mate, mate. I remember. But, John, John Andrew, I was, we were in, I was, had to go to uni that morning and I, um, we were in the shower, having a shower after. And I said, oh, John, when are you off the dojo floor? You can call him by his first name, not sensei. And I said, oh, John, I've left my uh, soap. Are you any soap in there? <laughs> and this big, ugly, mean, leathery face 
looks over into my cuba and he goes, what did you say? I said, oh, and he goes, soap, soap. I never want to hear you use that word ever again. Soap <laughs> makes your skin soft. And if your skin's soft, it tears easier, doesn't it? So don't talk to me about soap. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, mate, he was that tough. And then, wow. of course, the West End. I mean, I come up against some great opponents. But the very fact that I was able to, um, you know, whether, whether it's martial arts or, or boxing, it, it's, it was one of the great training for me for batting <laughs> because, you know, you needed footwork, you needed concentration, you needed technique, you needed a defence, you needed an attack, but you also needed to stand up to pretty fierce opponents. And that's yeah. what I was able to do or had to do throughout my whole career. career. Yep. Uh, I hope John is using soap now in these days of uh, oh, <laughs> being sanitary he was, and, mate, he was that, and coronavirus oh, tough, tough, tough. <laughs> um, I remember we're getting off we're getting off the subject a bit, but I went for my black gee, which is the just before the black belt, and yeah. I uh, I used to train with John Jeremy Jones, John Andrew, who was the sensei, and a guy called Neville Jeffries, who was a car salesman, marathon runner, and. To do that, I had to do this marathon, this training where I'd do one round of sparring against those guys, and they just kept alternating for the morning. Anyway, at the end of it, and I got bashed up. I had blood all over me, and they were, it was like the, the three uncles. They were so proud of me, and they're hugging me and high-fiving me, and they presented my black gee, and I got cuts on my eyes and nose. And you know, I got back into my, I remember my brown Corolla, and drove back to home. And I'm looking all tough and sweaty, and I bawled my eyes out the whole way home. <laughs> I was 20 years old, so this tough guy. It was a great, um, you know, great lesson. It was great to get through it, but oh, I think it was the physical and the mental disintegration. Mm. Um, and it soon, and I got home. My mum's going, "What's happened, darling?" I go, "Oh, no, no, it's great. I've just got my black belt." And, and she's going, "Yeah, it looks like it. You don't look too tough at the moment, crying your eyes out." Uh, and that's at the age of 20, was it? Did you say? Yeah, about the yeah. age of 20. Yeah, I, I, driving down farm or back home down the freeway, I was living. You can just imagine anyone walk, driving past me, seeing sweaty, crying my eyes out, like a like that Adam Sandler scene somewhere. Like you'd fled a crime scene or something. Uh, and of course, two oh. years later, you make your test debut, and I dare say that was good training for when you had to front up uh, to a, 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 as I mentioned, a pretty fierce uh, West Indian attack. Uh, JL, but uh, look, we need to take a break already. I'll get you to uh, expand on that after that. Justin Langer is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Australian cricket coach Justin Langer is our guest in this episode. JL, just before we get to you making your test debut at the age of 22, just reflecting on your your teenage years, it seemed like you know cricket was coursing through your veins you know so strongly your your uncle had played for WA you were representing WA as a youngster you represented Australia uh, in the under 19s it all it seemed like all things were pointing to you playing uh, elite level cricket but was there ever a plan B for you? Oh there was well it was funny because in year 12 I wanted to be a physiotherapist and Yeah, and I and it was funny because I wanted to be a physio, but I also did English and English literature at school. I yep. love, for some reason, I loved um, writing, I, and to this day I still do. But 
Um, and I obviously I played for, well, not obviously, but I played Aussie rules for, I got a great passion for Aussie rules football. But what mm. happened is in, in year 12, I got invited to go to England with a combined schoolboys tour. And the, 80% of the guys who went on that tour went to, um, had already left school, so they were a bit older. So I went and we played 24 games or 25 games of cricket. And we played this game at Lords. Um, just so lucky as kids. We played this game at Lords and I was able to score 100. And I don't remember anything about the innings, but what I remember is running around afterwards to the red phone box at Lords and I reverse charge called my mum and dad. <laughs> and I. And a lot of the younger listeners have got no idea what reverse charge calling <laughs> no. is, but um, but I reverse charge called mum and dad, and so it would have been whatever three o'clock in the morning or whatever. And I rang my mum and I said, "Mum, dad, you're not gonna believe it. Why come up? I just got a hundred at Lords, and I never. And I, to this moment, I get tingles thinking about how mm. proud my mum and dad were. And that was like a really important. So I missed out on getting enough marks for physio, probably because I'd been in England for a month during year twelve. Um, playing cricket, but I just remember how proud of, they proud of me I, they were, and it was a, just a really strong motivator from that moment on. Really, you've probably made up for it by spending so much time in the hands of physios over the years, JL. So you've got your taste of it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I've certainly, I've certainly done that. There's no doubt about that. Let's fast forward to January 1993, the Adelaide Oval. You've got the call up uh, to represent uh, Australia to make your Test debut. Uh, and you come up against uh, an informed Kirtley Ambrose and Ian Bishop, uh, two big mm. names uh, in the catalogue of great West Indian fast bowlers. Take us to that moment when you first had to pad up to one, you know, well, to both of those guys and, and others in the team. Well, it was so funny because I was batting number three, and Mark Taylor and David Boone, two of my particularly Booney, my great Anzac hero, walks out to bat, and I'm thinking we had to bat just before stumps on that first day, we'd done really well, it bowled resting his out, and I'm thinking, oh, I'll just have a nice rest here, and, you know, I'll have a good sleep tonight, and have a bat tomorrow, and there's this big appeal, big appeal, and Mark Taylor was out first ball, and I hadn't even put my pads on, <laughs> so you imagine, this is like, this is meant to be the dream, and it turns into a complete nightmare, <clears throat> and eventually, I, you know, Mark Taylor's in the room, I pad on, about to be the first person ever timed out for the first test for, for in test cricket, <laughs> I eventually get out there, and the very first ball for me and Bishop hit me fair and square in the back of the helmet, and, and I yeah. was absolutely rattled. So um, the dream was quickly becoming a reality. So, <laughs> and that and that obviously that happens a lot in life, doesn't it? There's a, a yeah. great friend of mine, Brett Warner from SAS, and he once said to me, Justin, just remember, most people can live the dream, but not many people can live the reality. And that stuck with me for a very long time. So a lot of people might like a baggy green cap or um, or a green beret or be a CEO or be running their own um, podcasts or be whatever. They like the idea of not many people can live the reality of it. Mm. And to be really good at something or be under pressure and be in leadership roles, you've got to be ready. And and I didn't, I had no idea, Tim, what test cricket was going to be like, but I found out very quickly. Very David quickly. Boone said to me, Justin, test cricket will never, ever be harder this, than this for you, son. And I thought it was just being nice to me, but actually it wasn't. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it was such a great gulf between where I'd been to test cricket 
Um, but what an amazing experience. Yeah. Well, you talk about difficult moments, though, and I'm, I'm skipping forward uh, now to your 100th Test match. Um, you're in South Africa, um, and you've just been, again, whacked in the head by uh, Mackay Antini, the another ferocious bowler, this time from South Africa. Um, that was a, a pretty pivotal moment for you too, wasn't it? Because, uh, you know, there was uh, a chance that you were going to have to come out and, and bat again in the second innings against all advice. But just just talk us through those days because that sounds like an absolute nightmare. Well, again, it was funny because the dream was it got to a point. I mean, you never never really dream of playing a hundred Test matches, but mm. it got to a point. I'm like, oh, wow, this is a great this is a great opportunity here. <clears throat> so I played my hundredth Test. Some uh, some great friends of mine from London had flown over. They had flown over from London. My mum and dad had flown over for the Test match, and I got knocked out cold first ball. Yep. So first ball of the Test. So I'm out, and I'm out. Of, and in this day. Um, I'm sure I had many concussions throughout. In fact, I know I had many concussions throughout my career, but that was the worst of them. And in this day, and with all the protocols now, I, there's no way I, I would have been out for a few weeks. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, and we got down to eight wickets down, and there's just something just burnt. The morning of the last day, I had to say to all the team, it was quite emotional. Said, Guys, whatever happens, I've been told I'm not allowed to bat. And I remember Maddie Hayden and Andrew Simons, two particularly Haydos, great friends of mine, looked at me and they're sort of going, what? What do you mean you're not going to bat? They're playing for Australia, mate. I said, and I was just, anyway, we get down to eight down. I said, no, bugger this. So I put on all my on my clothes. Ricky Ponting, the captain's going, mate, you are not going out to bat. We're not letting you. You're not well enough. And the, the team manager, Steve, has turned white. And I said, guys, if I don't go out to bat, I will regret this the rest of my life. And so I'm ready. And as it turned out, we won an amazing game eight down. And it was yeah. very, very pleasing. South Africa walking up. They thought they were going to win the test. And I was standing there in my whites. And then the look on the face, the opposite of Matty Hayden and Simo later that day when they're going, ah, yeah, respect. It was probably really dumb, but it was just, <laughs> uh, um, it, was, it was a very nice feeling. Yeah. Because even in the, the time building up to that, you were groggy, vomiting, pounding headaches, all the rest of it. So, again, all the medical signs pointed to that being a, a really bad idea on your part. Well, we see it now. I mean, concussion, we saw it with Steve Smith during the ashes. I mean, that was a brutal, brutal blow. We've seen it to the absolute extreme with Phil Hughes, of course, mm. which was just one of the saddest days of my life. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's very topical at the moment and it's something that we should take seriously. Yeah. Now, somewhere in between that one and a hundred, of course, you formed uh, an incredible bond uh, with uh, the man you just mentioned, Haydos, Matthew Hayden. What was it that made your relationship as an opening pair, apart from just the runs scored, but you guys just seemed to just gel as a duo? Um, there was something magical about it. What was the secret to it? They're great friends, and I often say camaraderie within a sporting group, or probably in a family or in business. Um, the camaraderie is so crucial, particularly when the... It's like the glue that keeps everything together, particularly when the pressure comes on. Mm. Um, so, And we had this incredible... And we still do. I mean, we've got this... Great, we're like brothers. And so you walk out to bat in a test match and it's like two of us against 11 of them. And, it was just, and, the, and it, as it evolved, it was also... It actually turned into three. It was Haydos, myself and Ricky Ponting at top yep. three. We are literally like brothers... And that camaraderie and that friendship and 
that was something that was important. And we also compliment We're very different. He's about seven foot tall. I'm about four <laughs> foot tall. Um, we are both about left-handed, but we do it very differently. We get the same yeah. results, but we do it very differently. So that helped as well. Yeah. Uh, we need to take another break, JL. Uh, plenty more to get through, though. Justin Langer is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Justin Langer is our special guest. Uh, Justin, uh, just reflecting on some of your, your standout uh, moments at the crease. Do you have a favourite? I mean, we've got your your two fifty uh, at the MCG, uh, that incredible uh, uh, match in uh, Tassie, I think it was against Pakistan, where you and and Gilly had to steer the uh, the team home. Which innings stands out for you as your your best ever? Oh, so hard to say. <clears throat> Believe it or not, probably when I was about twenty one. We played a Shield final. Um, WA versus New South Wales and we beat them against all odds Uh, and I it's funny because I ended up getting about 100 um, but on the way to the ground that day I was driving along and I made no runs it was a miracle I played the game because um, Mark Lavender he should have played the Shield final but he had hurt his ankle in a freak accident um, a few days before in Sydney, so I played. The I've got no runs in the first innings. I'm stressing out. I can't bat. You know, I'm worried. I'm going to have a hit with uh, Ken and Bob Newman that morning before my second innings. And I was driving down the freeway. I remember I was listening to Genesis of Phil Collins. I can't <laughs> dance. I can't. Why? I remember I was singing along, and I'm thinking it's only early in the morning. I'm driving, listening to this song. Anyway, I'm in my own world. I look up, and all the cars have stopped, and I wrote my car off. Wow. Comple- completely wrote my car off. So, um, and then we had to go and bat, and we end- had a great innings with Tim Zura, and that was probably my favourite game of cricket. Actually, that in that in Pakistan yeah. um, against in Hobart, I batted with Gilly, another wicketkeeper, of course, and just one of the great people and one of the best players you've ever seen, yeah. Adam Gilchrist. But um, so there's lots of. I think the thing I'm even my last innings I was batting with Hados mm. when we beat England five 0 I walked off together at the SCG, so that was a nice moment. So many great memories. But mm. I, the thing I'm most proud about Tim is that, that I had such longevity in the yeah. game, and to have longevity means you got to get through a lot of disappointments, go through some dark times, enjoy some really high times as well. Yep. But the longevity in the game is what gave me the most pride, I think. Yeah, and, and being part of such an incredible side uh, and one that um, really come early 2007 when you announced your retirement, it really was the end of an era, wasn't it? Because you finished up, uh, well, a few months after fellow West Australian Damien Martin, but also Warney and, and McGrath calling it a day at the same time. I, I've got a quote from you here, JL, when you were asked about your decision to retire and you said, everyone keeps saying, you'll know when it's time well, at one o'clock two days ago, I knew it was time. It just came to me. What happened at one o'clock on that day? Well, a couple of things happened. One, I was David Boone, who's a great mate, and um, he was a selector at the time. And we were in the MCG on day, f- we're playing the fourth test match. And I remember saying to Booney, I said, oh, mate, tell me about this thing, retirement. You know, he goes, hmm, it's on your mind, is it? I said, <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe a little bit. He goes, it's a lot closer than you think, son. 
Mm. And I went, oh, okay. And then we ended up winning that test match, so we go 4-0 up. I remember so cool. Two things happened that night. We sing the team song after. It was one of the great memories. Of the best parts of playing the game is singing the song and being with your mates. But and I was the song master at the time, so I'd been given that role for a few years before. And I remember sitting with Haydos, Maddie Hayden, and he was so desperate to get back in the one-day side, and he had the eye of a tiger. Like mm. literally, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but he was so determined, and I. After getting knocked out in that hundredth test, I had literally done everything. My eye of the tiger moment was getting back on the on the bike and getting to the end of the ashes. And he had this talk, and I thought, how am I going to get that back? Like we're not playing test cricket for a while. I can't get that. And then the biggest moment was I've got to get up and sing the team song, the thing that I've loved most about playing for test playing test cricket. And I'm thinking to myself, I'd rather be home at the hotel with the girls. Yeah. And that was yep. the moment. And I I told my dad the next day. I thought it was going to be really hard to tell my dad. I told him the next day and he said, yeah, I think it's a good time, son. So that was a relief. <laughs> and I, I told Haydos and Ricky the next morning. They tried to talk me to do it going for one more year, but I just knew. And yep. Uh, yep. I, and I've said that to many. You just know. And it was yep. the timing was right. Yeah. Uh, having said that, um, the baggy green might have been put back in the, in the bag, but you still played on for WA and also uh, county cricket in England. Was it hard to, to keep that fire and that hunger uh, in those formats, uh, even though you'd, you'd given Test cricket away? Well, it's, it's interesting what happened because at the end of that year, and, I, and it still burns me a bit, but West Australia decided that I'd been captain on um, for a few years leading up to it, and I'd just retired from Test cricket, and the, the whacker decided to go in a different direction, a, a young captain, a young vice captain, and that really, and Tom Moody had just come back as coach, and that really burned me. Um, I was really disappointed about that. So I played one more year for WA, and then I went, and Somerset rang me, and I mm. went and captained their, them for three years, and, and it was a, it's amazing how that was a stepping stone for my coaching career, because Somerset were the bottom of the second division, they were the worst team in county cricket, and I took it on not so much to make runs, but just as this project with the coach, who's a, an ex-Royal Marine and a ripping human being, and he needed some help. So I took that project on, and by the time we'd left and finished three years later, we'd, we, we were, we'd won the championship and we're in the first division, let alone the second division. So yep. it, was a, it was a great grounding for me to start coaching. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it was an important time for my family. We lived in a little village in Somerset. It was just a magic time. So yep. uh, there, there was no lack of motivation, that's mm. for sure. You, you mentioned uh, that your family was a big part of your motivating, uh, you motivated to call it a day in Test cricket. Um, over all of these years when you, you know, you're playing county cricket, you're playing for WA, you're playing for Australia, uh, you're married all the way through it to your childhood sweetheart. You've got four daughters how did that all balance? Yeah, it was hard, and I and I, I question myself regularly about. I wonder if it's going to how it's going to affect my family and my kids. Um, but what I you know, I can sit here right now. I've got beautiful daughters. They're they're, they're just fantastic young people, um, and I've been re- it's been really important to, for me to stay connected to them. And it's in these times, this these times of isolation. I think because they had such great um, um, training in it over the years, staying connected with people is really easy because yeah. usually I, I've got to, I have to stay connected because I'm on the other side. Well, for example, 
I, I swore to myself, regard, back then when the costs were quite high, I would talk to my family, my mum and my dad, and my obviously my wife, and then and when the kids came, every mm. single day regardless. So and I spoke to my mum until my mum died mm. a, a couple of years ago. It was a horrible time, but um, I spoke to my mum or my dad every single day since I was about 18 years old. I Is reckon. that right? So, wow. Yeah, and, and wherever I was in the world, and that was a, a something that I said, whatever happens, and so I, and I still do. So I love my dad anyway. So um, and it's the same with so with now with FaceTime and back then Skype. It's incredible how you can stay connected. Yep. Hey, just before we finish up with your actual playing days, I just wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions. And I say this because, uh, like a lot of people, I think I've been spending probably uh, too much time. Uh, on social media, getting all nostalgic and looking at old sporting clips, uh, <laughs> and there's a there's a guy on Twitter who posts some amazing old memories, old cricket memories. He must have the biggest garage full of old VHS tapes, and and he just happened to post the other day one of you taking a beamer from Shoah um, <laughs> 154 k's an hour. It's it's just aimed at you <laughs> and collects you somewhere kind of around the the upper arm shoulder area. Uh, as far as the the most menacing bowlers that you faced go, um, you know how was how was Shoah Bakhtar? Because he was certainly one of the quickest, wasn't he? Well, Shoah Bakhtar was the fastest, no doubt. I mean, yeah. everyone talks about Jeff Thompson, but you, you think of how anyone could have been quicker than Shoah Bakhtar? It's good. And then uh, we were talking off air a little while ago. Matty Hayden, as soon as he walked on the ground, Matty Hayden had walked straight up to Shobaktar and start winding him up. You know, you know what's going to happen today? You're soft and da-da-da-da-da. I'm going, hey, Dos, relax. I'm going to take the first ball. He goes, no, no, you know how it works. You know, he's blind and the angrier he gets, the worse he bowls, the faster he bowls, and it goes everywhere. But the problem is, a lot of times, he had no idea where they were going, like that bean ball. So how on earth we knew where they were going to go? But one thing I can tell for you certain... When you're facing guys like Shoah Bakhtar, you know you're alive. Yeah. <laughs> you know you're up. The adrenaline's pumping. It's something I miss a lot is just that fight and that yep. the energy and the adrenaline you get. But, oh, great memories. Thanks mm. for bringing them back. It's, it's <laughs> nice to get that feeling again. Do you wince when you remember that? Can you still remember the impact of that ball thundering into you at 150-plus k's an hour? Well, 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 what I do remember, and, and I, I can't even believe I'm admitting this on air, but... After I got hit in my 100th test match, as we just mentioned, I played for a few months. I was petrified every single ball after that. But you do. You remember that that horrible feeling. I I don't remember the one-off act. When it hits you on the ball, you're almost like badges of honour, to be Mm. honest. But I got that one in uh, South Africa, and it was really, yeah, that was Mm. every time a bowler was running into bowling me after that, you just remember that feeling, and it's a horrible feeling. Yeah. So who was the best bowler that you came up against? I'd say Muralitharan from uh, Sri Lanka, believe yep. it or not. He, gave me my, he took me closer to depression than any other bowler. Is that so right? I couldn't work him out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just could not work him out. And particularly in, in, in Sri Lanka, he was a genius. Um, and then Wazam Akram, who bowled fast like Shoah Bakhtar, but was... You know, his skill was yep. absolutely sublime. Um, Ambrose and Walsh were brilliant. Um, Sean Pollock was brilliant from South Africa. Andrew Flintoff was in the top few. And the problem with Flintoff, he was such a good bloke, he'd be smiling at you the whole time. And then, <laughs> But you want to get in a fight. You know, you want to fight him, not yeah. smile at him. And like you're at the pub having a beer with him. So and he, was, he was a great... Yeah. Andrew Flintoff was a great bowler. What about the, uh, the, the batsman that you admired most? 
uh, yeah, I, I, I can probably guess, you know, Maddie Hayden, Ricky Ponting are, are right up there, yeah? Yeah, Damien Martin was probably the most talented I ever saw. I think Damien Martin was as talented as Brian Lara and Sachin Tendulkar. He right. was he was a freakish talent, yeah. Mm. Um, and yeah, what a player. Um, I admire, and Steve War. I thought Steve War, his he was the run machine. As I was coming through and not being in the first eleven, but being on the, all the touring sides, he was just a run machine. So yep. I admired him. Yeah. Um, uh, Viv Richards is my all time. Viv Richards. When I was a kid, I just wanted to be Viv Richards. You yeah. know, he was a legend. Alan Border, <laughs> of course. Yeah, you know, I, I could go on all day. I'm a yeah. cricket tragic. Um, all my heroes and all guys I wanted to try and emulate in one degree or another. Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone wanted to be Viv at some point, didn't they? <laughs> I still do now. <laughs> I still think about being Viv everywhere I'm walking down the street or walking up under pressure. I can't just, just walk yeah, like what Viv, would mate. Viv You'll do? be fine. Yeah. Get the chewing gum in the mouth, get the swagger on. Yeah, what a legend. What (laughs) What a a legend. Plenty more coming up after the break. Justin Langer is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest in this episode is Justin Langer. Uh, Jaya, we've gone uh, this far without mentioning uh, your stint as the Australian cricket coach. An extraordinary job at an extraordinary time. And that seems like an understatement even to use those words but of course uh, you know when Australian cricket was going through probably the biggest crisis in my lifetime with uh, Sandpaper Gate can you just talk us through the process of how you uh, were first contacted and then the thought processes you went through when you decided yes I'm going to take this on I remember clear as my wife had flown to London to surprise my daughter for a 21st birthday so I was home with the three girls and it was around Easter time and We'd come back, and I remember sitting on the couch with my little one, Gracie, and and I'd turn the cricket on and the test match was on, and now just before the break, and they had showed this picture of a hand and what was clearly sandpaper, and I thought, mm. and I remember saying to Gracie, Gracie, pray that's not Cameron. She goes, what do you mean, Dad? I said, oh, just pray it's not Cameron. I knew it was because Banger's got these big hands, and sure enough... And it was just, oh, I remember going to the Fremantle markets the next morning. I've done this for five or six. This is my second daughter, Ali Rose. That's me going, hang out at the Fremantle markets, mind mm. our own business, have our coffee with Tim and, and have our Gosler May and talk rubbish. Anyway, the next morning, and not, you know, everyone leaves you alone, but the next morning, I reckon 40 people at the Fremantle markets go, what's happened? What's happened to Australian cricket? Oh, and yeah. they're crying, they're angry. And then the, the, the next day, I went to the, the construction site of the West Coast Eagles new facility. Yep. And there's about 30, there's about 300 Aussie blokes there in their steel cap boots, their high vis and their hard caps and, you know, walking around doing this, building the building and they come, mate, what has happened with Australian cricket? Da, 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 da. And then we went down to Mandra to, to a few days later for Easter and that's when Darren Lehman resigned. Mm. I remember my kids all looking at me going, Dad, what does that mean? And I went, oh, I don't know. I don't know, kids. And then as it turned out, um, I had James Sullivan. I spoke to James Sullivan a little bit later, and it all became formalised about a month later. So, And I had no idea the 
storm that I was walking into. But yep. I look back on it two years later, and what an opportunity, what a journey, and you know, it's been it's been an incredible learning experience. Given your character, you seem like uh, almost the obvious and, and dare I say, the only man uh, for the job. Did you feel a sense of obligation for you to step up at that moment? I, I did actually, because I, I was. The truth is, I mean, one, I had, was very lucky to. Um, live a great apprenticeship through West Australian Cricketer and the Scorchers. So, um, and I, I can't tell you how important that was for me to be ready for that job. Yep. Um, and I loved my job. I, I literally loved coaching the West Australian. Christina Matthews, just a legend. Ben Oliver. Um, you know, we had Dennis Lilly was the president and guys like Sam Gann, who I'd known for a long time. These are just, and I loved my job. It was almost the dream job, Tim, because mm. I'm living in Perth. Mm. I'm doing what I love doing. I'd just gone onto the board of the West Coast Eagles Footy Club. I could see my friends all the time, my family. It was the dream job. Yeah. And it probably still is, to be honest. <laughs> um, but, but then it all changed, obviously. And then I did. I mean, Australian cricket's been so good to me. I've, I've Since I was a little kid, you know, I've loved Australian cricket, and we were in crisis. And um, when the job was offered to me, I, there was no choice, really. I mean, there was, but there wasn't. So, yeah. and I'm, even though it's been an incredibly tough two years um, for, from so many angles, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the way the boys have turned it round. Yeah. Our, our main main objection was to make Australians proud of us again. I think we're starting to do that to earn respect back. We think we're starting to do that. Um, we've got a great group of people on and off the field and hopefully we're moving in the right direction. Steve Smith, there seems to be a lot of uh, commentary around whether he uh, could or should be able to captain the side again. Do you have any thoughts on that that you could share with us? Oh, look, in the in the time leading, leading up to it, you know, there was a lot of, oh, what's going to happen Steve Smith? Do they come back? David Warner, do they come back? What's going to happen? And a lot of work went into making sure they were ready to transition back into the team. And the reason for saying that there's so much talk, public um, scrutiny on it and different opinions and lots of worry about it. What I've learned about life is that these things will work themselves out. And if it's all about... Tim Payne's doing an incredibly good job at the moment. Aaron Mm. Fink does a great job in the white ball team. Um, and it's always about timing, Tim. In life, it's about timing. And if Steve Smith's the right person at the right time, well, then we'll have a look at it. And if he's not, then that's okay as well. He'll keep he'll keep providing leadership, untitled leadership, like he has for the last 12 months. And it's a win-win for everyone. So time will tell. Um, he's a terrific young bloke. He's an extraordinary batsman and professional. Yep. Um, so we'll see what happens when the time ha- when the time comes about. Yep. In terms of being part of the Australian coaching setup, um, you know, obviously prior to um, your stint as the main coach, you were a batting coach for the Australian cricket team and a mentor. Uh, for the team, you know, several years earlier, weren't you? Did, did that give you a, a taste of things and, and made you want the main gig at some point in the future? Oh, probably. Um, it was funny how it worked out, though, because Ricky Ponting and Tim Nielsen were the captain and the coach when I was still playing at Somerset, and I played the last... Sorry, Australia were playing a one-day international at Lords, and I had a beer with... And I was down commentating, and... I went down and to the change room after and Punner said to me, oh, mate, when you retire at the end of the year, 
how about coming and working with us? I said, mate, I might not retire. He goes, mm. no, don't worry. I know you're going to retire. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, and I said, oh, and it was really the, a seed had been planted. Um, but I go when I was 25, I went as a scholarship coach with Rod Marsh at the Cricket Academy. So there must have been something in my blood all the way back. Yep. Um, I ran a cricket camp at Hale for 22 years, the Justin Langer Cricket Camp. So there must have been something in my blood. And the day after I retired, sure enough, I got a phone call from Ricky <laughs> Ponting. How about coming and coaching with us? I and bet you did. So I was very, I was very, very, very lucky to get that opportunity early, mm. and that gave me a taste of what things to come. Uh, Jay, on a personal note, I remember reading um, uh, something about you from around about that time. I think it was 2011-ish. Uh, you were the batting coach for the Australian cricket team at the time, and you got that uh, devastating phone call uh, from your mum. Can you? Uh, oh, yeah, I never yeah. forget it. Um, yeah, we're in we're in we're in Potchefstroom in um, in South Africa, and it was I, I got the phone call from Mama. I've got ovarian cancer, and it was like the sad, I just couldn't believe it. And that's yeah. I've never ever felt so alone and so far away from my family. And that's when my mind started ticking. Oh, you know, I know I love coaching. Um, imagine being Nicky Arthur was the coach of WA at the time, so it looked seemed miles away that opportunity. But I, certainly, I turned my attention to coming home, however that was going to look. So, yeah, and that's why it worked out. Um, sadly, Mum died about five years later, and mm. it was a, you know, I miss her every day. Um, she's but was the great hero of my life. Um, yeah. But soon that that's when I knew it was time to come home. Yeah, and I know during that time too, you um, you developed an association with. Uh, the Solaris Cancer Centre as well, and you continue to be an ambassador or a patron uh, for yeah, Solaris. Yeah, been a patron for a long time. Yeah, yeah. with Solaris. It's a, and I, I saw it, I, I knew that I'd been asked by um, Dr. David Josky, who I call the saint, he's a legend, mm. um, years before. And I thought, oh, great idea, but it, they were so good to my mum. When you have first-hand... Um, and I'd been patron for five years before that, and, you know, doing good work. But when you see what they do for... It becomes personal. Mm. It gives you. It's like the silver chain. The silver chain nurses are literally guardian angels. Every time I see one, I, right driving along the road, I just want to go and give them a big hug because, mm. like we're seeing, seeing with our nurses and our teachers in this current in, environment, this current crisis, these are these are the most important people in society. And and you know, I'm not going to get political here, but they're the ones. They should get paid so much money because. Mm. Or looked after because they are the the doctors and the nurses and the school teachers. They are the so important in our society, and and I learned that through my mum. I've learned that, you know, throughout my whole life. But these are just just amazing people that yep. we should be looking after. They're absolute diamonds, aren't they? Uh, and I suppose now that we've had to take a pause on life as as we knew it, uh, you know, and you've obviously taken those life lessons on board, perhaps in a more profound way than you know than, than a lot of other people do. Uh, when you think about cricket resuming at some point in the future, JL, have your goals or your motivations changed in any way? Is there any, has there been any shift in perspective? I think it's going to be, um, we'll never ever, it was, ironically, I mean, Adam Simpson asked me to go and talk to the um, West Coast Eagles boys the, the, more, the Saturday morning before their first game, and then it got postponed up the, the following day. So, but I went and spoke to the boys then, and a couple of things I said. Well, one, in crisis, you need leadership. You need everyone to stand up. We're in a crisis at the moment. Uh, the second thing I, I said to the, the West Coast Eagles players was along the lines of when you're a kid, 
used to go and play junior footy and there wasn't any crowds there. Your mum and dad might have come and watched and your brother and sister were probably bored on the swing so they didn't want to watch you play footy. Mm. So, <laughs> but, so you played for the great love of the game, right? You, the great love of the game. And, and in professional sport now... We are so spoiled. We are so we get to play the Eagles play in front of fifty five thousand every game. The Australian cricket team plays in front of packed crowds. We should never, ever, ever take that for granted ever again. So that's yep. one perspective. I think we'll be a lot leaner and meaner in terms of I mean, the sport's got fat because there's been so much money coming into the games. We've got a bit fat. Um uh because we've been able to and I think it's gonna get leaner and meaner the the most the best performers, the most multi-skilled coaches and administrators, they are the ones who will get the jobs. It's going to get very competitive for jobs. There's not going to be the same money in the game for some time. So my perspective has changed, and I'm really excited about the challenge coming forward. Well, I'm excited to see what uh, comes of it too, JL. So all the best uh, with that and everything else uh, that's going on in your very busy life. And thank you so much for uh, sharing some of your memories and sharing your story with us today. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Anytime. Thanks, JL. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA Inspiring Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.